take one and have one as our gift to you. And today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 15. Um, Before I get started with that, though, I should tell you all that um, I like to win (laughs) a lot. And um, I learned that in this church. Not that I like winning, but that the way that I like winning um, can sometimes put me into a limited category of people. It's not that everyone universally loves to win and finds it as perhaps the most satisfying experience of life, um, but rather that me and a few others like me are perhaps sinfully over competitive. <laughs> and um, this church has really helped me become more aware of my struggle in that area. And I've, I've got a lot of healing and I've made a lot of um, headway in that. And now I can play games and lose them and still enjoy the experience and still like the people that I played with, including the winner who defeated me and humiliated me. Um, <laughs> But I wasn't always this way. I wasn't always this picture of self-awareness that you see before you today. Uh, When I was 10, I had um, an interesting friendship in elementary school because I was a Protestant and I had a friend who was Catholic. And we grew up in a town that was, um, both of these groups are represented. So it wasn't like one of us was a fish out of water or anything. But we, um, but we did discuss, I mean, some weighty religious matters as fifth graders, which I look back on and can be a little proud about. And um, we got into an argument, me and his name was Jared. We got into an argument around this time of year, around the season of Lent, because he made the claim that fish, like to eat a fish, that fish is not meat because it's Lent, and during Lent, um, people who are Catholic um, don't eat meat, and they have fish fries on Fridays, though, and so because Catholic people don't eat meat, but on Fridays they eat fish, ergo, fish is not meat, and I disagreed, (laughs) and I let him know, and um, it really devolved very quickly, as you might imagine, from 10-year-olds into like a yaha, nah kind of an argument, and we took it to the teacher, and Miss Miller, in her integrity, told the truth about science and the categorization of different kinds of plants and animals and animal vegetable mineral and she came down on my side and I won it was glorious and I let Jared know how glorious it was for me and not for him and um, and then the next day, I stayed home from school. I was one of those kids that I was always trying to con my mom into letting me stay home from school, even though I wasn't really sick. Sometimes I was successful, and on that particular day, I was successful. Um, I wasn't sick. I probably just want to watch TV or something. You know, I was just one of those annoying kids that thought I shouldn't have to go to school all the time. And um, and then the next day, the most incredible thing happened. I came back to school, and there were some papers on my desk. Some you might almost call it propaganda of a revolution that had started in my absence um, that, that painted me as a villain, shockingly. Um, they had a little name, a little anti-Kara name. I can't actually remember it very well, but the tagline was, because sometimes fish isn't meat. And, and um, apparently just a lot of passion had been expressed very artistically um, on a number of these pages. And they had been caught by the teacher the day before. I didn't know any of this um, until after the fact. And she had, you know, everybody got in trouble. The little people in my group, you know, you sit in groups in elementary school sometimes. Our desks are all together and there's little clumps. And so my little four compatriots, like we all, they 
my four other people were really upset at how I treated Jared. And so um, they got in trouble after they had expressed their passion. And, um, and then they left these documents on my desk by way of apology. So they have the opportunity to say, hey, sorry about this. Also, we were mad. But, you know, maybe we said some things that were a little bit too mean when you weren't there. So I cried in the bathroom. They cried. We're all, you know, pretend. The girls all cried. The boys pretended they didn't know what was going on. Maybe they didn't know what was going on. And, um, <laughs> but the whole, the whole journey for me was really unexpected. The whole thing was just really a surprise because I was doing, I was on a path of uh, victory and intellectual integrity that I felt was completely justified. And I was so surprised when uh, the consequences of that resulted in broken relationships. And it was, it was like, it was maybe one of the first moments of my life when I thought, maybe this isn't the right way to go about things. Hmm. And the, the dawn of self-awareness began, you know, began, came and, you know, this blossomed into now I'm actually a quite pleasant person, you know, with games or other you know, feats of strength or any other competitive words. Um, but I do think that, like, this is something that a lot of us have experienced of, you know, I thought a certain way and then something happened. And I realized that how I was acting, what I was thinking, what I was saying, maybe wasn't the best way to do that. Maybe you can think of an event like this in your own life. We're going to read a story about two sons, actually, who um, the, the dawn of self-awareness comes upon them. So this is Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read the first couple of verses so we have the context, and then we'll jump to the parable of the lost son. So verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus. And you know when they say tax collectors and sinners, they mean the bad guys and the bad guys were gathering around Jesus. And then the Pharisees, people who considered themselves good guys, and the teachers of the law, good guys and good guys, muttered, uh, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And then Jesus tells a couple stories. He talks about a lost sheep and the value of that sheep to the shepherd. He talks about a lost coin and the value of that coin to the woman who lost it. And then in verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set... To, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no, longer to be, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, 
He heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, has come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for your ministry on earth and for the wisdom that you share with us through the Bible. God, would you speak to us fresh about this today? Would you allow us to receive your grace and to become like you in extending that grace? We ask that you would draw near to us, that you would really enable us to perceive your presence. Let us feel you close and be changed by you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a powerful story. Um, but like many of Jesus' stories, it's told, well, like all of Jesus' stories, it's told in a time and a place that are very far away from here, Springfield, Missouri, in 2016. And I think that that gap can sometimes take the teeth out of the story that Jesus tells because there are things that strike the original audience that maybe they don't impact us quite the same way. Um, so let's kind of go through this again and, and observe some things. First, the younger brother, this younger son, he says to his father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided it between them. Now, their culture is like ours in that if you have an inheritance coming from your parents, you're not going to get it until your parents die. And maybe you've heard this before, but when the younger son says, give me my share, he's saying, I wish you were dead. You're better off, you're better for me, it's better for me if you were dead than if you were alive. So let's just act as if that were the case. Um, in this particular culture, you know, when we talk about the estate that the father has to divide among his sons, mostly we're talking about land, not like cash, and the relationship that the Jewish people had with the land in this time is maybe a little bit more intense than the relationship that, say, Americans might have with our property. This isn't the case of, oh, it was a really cute house, and I sold it, and I miss that house. It has this pretty stained glass, and I like the way the stairs, the breakfast nook. It's not like that. This is the land that God has promised to this, his chosen people. This is the land that God delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. They, he took them through the desert, led them by fire and by smoke, and he... Um, raised up a generation to take the land. He delivered all of their enemies into their hands. There's this one amazing story about this heavily fortified city, Jericho, and they took it down by yelling at it. Pretty remarkable. And this, and then, and then, as they took that promised land, then it was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel, and it passed from father to son, father to son, generations and generations and generations. So when the son says, give me my inheritance, he's saying, tear your life apart. Because I don't want you. I want your stuff. 
lose your standing in society by um, giving me my third of the land. The son obviously sells it because then he's all mobile and he, and he you know, leaves. Um, and so selling property is like a really big deal. If you had property, if you were a Jewish landowner, then you were one of the stewards of God's promise to all of your people. And so for the son to make this um, request or to make this demand, um, what, what we might have expected if we were sitting around listening to Jesus talk as we might have expected that the father would have beaten his son, would have disowned him, would have driven him out of his home, that society would have turned his back on him because what a disrespectful, dangerous person who doesn't understand our values, who doesn't understand who we are, who can't be trusted with wealth, but the father doesn't do that. Instead, the father divides his property between them. In fact, Jesus paints the picture of a father who does a lot of really unexpected things. We'll talk more about the father in a few minutes. So then the son takes the wealth and he squanders it, and then um, he hits rock bottom. And he has this kind of wake-up moment. What am I doing here? You know, even the servants in my dad's house have it better than I do. Maybe I can go back. In fact, and he kind of comes up with this, maybe I can earn my way back. I'll, I'll ask my father to be a hired servant. I couldn't expect my father to, uh, to actually take me back, but maybe I'll be able to do that. Now, this whole thing with the younger brother of going from, you know, we kind of go from zero to 60 in the story. We don't know anything about the younger brother. And then he does this despicable thing. And the more we learn about the culture, the more despicable we realize that it is. And then he goes away and then he thinks, maybe I'll come back. And I feel a disconnect between me and this young man because, you know, my sin's not really that bad. (laughs) And, right, that's what I say to myself. And also, um, and also, I just, I haven't had, like, one big, huge relationship-destroying moment. My sin's more like I'm kind of bad on a consistent basis over time. You know, it ebbs and it flows. I have my highs and my lows. And things get kind of, and then I really, oh, I need, to, I need to lock this down. And so then I try really hard. I get prayer. Maybe some really wonderful things happen. But on the timeline of my life, it's not like nothing, 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 nothing. Boom. It's a lot more like, let's kind of, I kind of do some bad things. And maybe I realize, oh, I could get away with that. Not really that bad. And then I do some worse things. And oh, I'm still, still doing all right. And so then maybe I do some worse things. You know, I kind of build up to this. So I imagine... And this isn't in the Bible, so imagine with me in a, in a place that's other than uh, canon Bible. Okay, imagine with me. Maybe the young son um, has been on this path for some time. You know, uh, he's the younger son, not the older son. Older sons get a little more, they get a little more special stuff. They get twice the inheritance that any other sons would receive. Um, maybe the older son, he seems like he's kind of, he's kind of good at life, right? We notice that later. I've obeyed all your commands. And the older son, he's like making A's in synagogue. He's like the head of the football team, the captain of the goat herding team, you know. And um, seems like this guy really kind of has it together. Um, are there any younger siblings in the room who have an older sibling who really has it together? And, you know, maybe, maybe younger son had ADHD. Maybe younger son was just a little skinnier and a little shorter and just couldn't quite keep up. And all of these things kind of started him on a path of getting a little bit more jealous, getting a little bit more vindictive, maybe doing something malicious, maybe getting away with it, and then a little more malice and a little more, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get what I want. I'm not going to get what I want if I, if I do the right thing, so I'll just do the wrong thing. I'm going to get what I want, how, whatever it takes. And then he gets to this place of saying this, really cruel thing to his parents. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I don't think they've learned to wield the word hate yet, but they have managed a, I don't like you, mommy. I like daddy. And it's, 
it hurts. I mean, I know them. Like, I can, like, I can step outside of myself and say, oh, my young child, you don't have social skills yet. But, but man, like, I don't like you, Mommy. That's, whew, I, <laughs> let me give you chocolate. No more timeouts, anything. Like me, love me. <laughs> I love you. Um, so I just, I wonder if there's this pattern of sin that the younger brother um, was was engaged in, and then, and that helps me kind of bring it back to myself. Is there a pattern of sin that I can see in my own life? Are there things that I do on a regular basis? Are there little things that seem to catch me up again and again, you know? Like, oh, I'm kind of a white liar. I tell, like, the little white lies, and, and it took me a long time, and those had to start getting kind of damaging before I realized this is, this is not the way to live life. Or I'm so competitive that I break friendships, and that has to happen again and again before I realize maybe this isn't the most important thing. Or, um, you know, I, uh, oh, well, I have more to confess in a second, but we'll get to that. Um, the next thing that happens to the younger son that I can identify with is he begins to feel pain. I saw this uh, news special back when 2020 was kind of like news. Remember that? Long time ago, in the early 90s. About a little girl who was born without the capacity to feel pain. And I was young at the time, too. I was, prob- I was probably like the same era of my life, like I'm 10 or 11 or 12. And like my, you, know, you remember when you had to watch what was on TV because that was all you had? Do you remember before TV was on the Internet? Those were dark days, weren't they? And so I watched 2020 by this little girl who uh, was born without the capacity to feel pain. And, w- and they said she was born with a disability. Her disability was that she couldn't feel pain. And I thought, well, that's a sweet deal. Like, you get a spanking, no problem. You stub your toe, you keep going, whatever. Party time, no pain. But it resulted in huge problems. She was, like, breaking her limbs all the time. Like, she broke her leg, and then it was in the cast, and something wasn't healing right, and they did an x-ray, and they realized that even though it was in the cast, she broke it again two more times because she didn't have pain to tell her not to jump off the porch. She didn't have pain to tell her not to run into the car. She didn't have pain to tell her this isn't working. They, um, when she was really little, they had to um, almost like basically tie her up when she went to sleep. You know, with really teeny tiny babies, you put the cute little mittens on them so they don't scratch their eyes or their face and they're teeny tiny and cute. Well, they had to do this for her through her whole childhood because if she would scratch her eye in her sleep, she wouldn't wake up and stop because she didn't have any pain telling her this isn't working. So if just a moment ago I was talking about, do you recognize a pattern of sin in your life? And you think, no. I don't. No sin. That's lovely. Um, maybe something that can also help us be more aware is, do you recognize a pattern of pain in your life? You know, like every friendship seems to end badly or every job seems to end badly. This just happens again and again. For me, um, I would point to emotional eating. I'm really trying to deal with my feelings by and control them by eating comfort food instead of turning to Jesus. And it's hard for me to say that's a sin. I mean, I live in America. We don't really say that's a sin, right? Like, that's not really the American church's deal, right? But, um, but man, I feel the pain, you know, when I go shopping and those clothes aren't as cute and I'm disappointed. Or when I'm carrying my kids upstairs and I'm like, you know, you think I just ran a marathon. I'm exhausted by the time I get to the top. Like, these are signals that tell me something's not working. And when, we, when we're able to recognize this, that's when we can respond like the, like the younger brother. We can go to the Father to receive grace. The, the Father accepts grace. In this story, Jesus challenges us to be like the younger son in that he accepts grace. 
there are two ways of looking at um, what he says. You know, he says, I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to say, I've sinned. I'm going to say, make me a hired servant. I've heard this both ways. I've heard some people say, when he goes to the father and he says, father, I've sinned, but then he doesn't say, make me your servant. One way that this, gets, that this could be interpreted is the, the son, in the presence of his father, realizes, I can't even earn my way back. That would be presumptuous. I'm not even going to try. I'm just totally on your mercy. Another way to, be inter- to interpret this would be that the father interrupts him. The father's not standing there saying, and, you're sorry, and... The father's not doing that. He, like, in the middle of the sentence, says, quick, get the robe, get the ring, get the car party, we're going to go, the son's back, I'm really excited. Doesn't even give his son a chance to say, I'd like to earn my way back into your favor, I'd like to pay you back, sorry I squandered all your wealth, I'll be a hired servant, apprentice me to a craftsman, and I'll be able to make some form of wealth that I'll be able to pay you back with. The father doesn't even hear it, because it's just, this is a very intense moment. So, um, so Jesus says, accept grace. Our sin, our sin and our pain can increase our awareness of our need to accept grace. Sometimes we don't want to accept grace, and I think we can allow our pain to point us into that direction. This is a good thing to do. It's good to go to the Father and to say, man, I'm not, I'm not getting this right. And sin, by the way, when we say sin, we mean missing the mark. So sometimes sin can be an intense thing, like telling your dad you wish he was dead, or like killing a person, definitely a sin. Not, you know, that's, you know, don't do that. Um, theft, you know, we have these Ten Commandments, sin, sin, sin. But also just when we miss it, just when we do it wrong, when we're just not following God, when we're not checking in with God about how to live our lives, that's sin. And, you know, all of these are sins, and they're all just sins. They're, um, they're all sins that God can forgive us for because he laid the foundation during Lent and Good Friday and Easter, and we'll talk about that in the weeks coming. The older brother, then, um, he shows up, and he's very mad. Um, he doesn't go into the party. I kind of, I always think he refuses to go, and that just seems a little, like, sulky, doesn't it? I'm going to pout. I'm going to stay out here. I'm not going to go and have fun, you know. And, um, and the father comes out and talks to him, and he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, and you never gave me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. So I think that our older brother's response here uh, is really telling about him. You know, so far the older son has been rewarded by society because he's following the rules, he's not disobeying his father, and he's still in a good relationship with his father, they're together, and he has access. I mean, I'm thinking he's probably not hungry. And, um, but then we see, there, the, we see feelings, his emotions that don't match his circumstance. You know, in, around the vineyard, we call that a bend in the line. I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and we were talking about a bend in the line, which is talking, it's like a fishing analogy. So forgive me, I don't know a lot about fishing. But I do know when you fish, you sit in like a boat or on a dock, and you have a fishing rod, and it, you know, goes out over the water, and then the fishing line dips down into the water. But you can't always see what's going on underneath of the surface. There are fish down there. You hope they bite the bait and you catch your fish. And so if you can't see what's beneath the water, this is going to seem so elementary and silly, but if you can't see what's under the water, one way you know you caught a fish is there's a bend in your fishing pole, like the pole bends. And you say, oh, look at that. I've caught a fish. And you reel it in, and it's not successful. So 
Um, using the analogy of talking about things that are beneath the surface, things that are, that are somewhat concealed, when we have an emotional response that doesn't match our circumstances, we call that a bend in the line. We've caught something. There's something down there. There's something under the surface that needs to be brought up, that needs to be brought into the light and looked at. So when the older son, who's checking all the boxes and he's doing all the right things, comes and he sees there's a party for his younger brother and he's mad, even though his father is the one who was the offended party and his father is the one who's throwing this celebration for the son and the father has forgiven the younger son and, and restored him, the fact that the younger son is angry about this is an indication that there's more going on with the younger son maybe than needs to be high. He also treats his, his father with disrespect. He should be responding to his father by saying, Father. When they say look in the passage, they're just trying to emphasize that the son is not addressing his father in a respectful way. And, um, and it becomes clear that the older brother has been following the rules, maybe also with the goal of getting wealth. The son doesn't celebrate grace, and Jesus encourages us to celebrate grace. So our feelings um, can also increase our awareness about our need to accept God's grace. So Jesus challenges us to accept God's grace like the younger son does. He, challenge us, he challenges us to celebrate when others receive that grace like the older son is not doing. And we hope he changes his mind. You know, it's kind of like it's left as a cliffhanger, like a choose-your-own-adventure. Jesus doesn't say what happens next with the older son. Does he go into the party? Does he reconcile with his father? Or, you know, does he, does he take off? Does he break that relationship? So, um, so let's talk about the Father for a little bit. And this is another one that, again, I think Jesus is saying some things that are really shocking here that aren't so shocking to us. And, th and this is one that I'd say, it's great that this isn't shocking to us. It's really, I think, a testament to um, something wonderful that Christianity has done and has given to all of us. The, the, the men and women of faith before us have given to us is that we're not surprised, I'm not surprised, to read about a father who's really nice, who's really kind. Um, a bunch of things happen. The father divides his wealth, totally unheard of. The father is obviously looking for the son. He sees the son when he's a long way off. The father runs to the son, which means he lifts up his robes and he shows off his legs. And all of that's considered very not okay in this culture. Um, one commentator actually says Jesus describes a son, or Jesus describes a father who also has qualities that this society would have connected more with a mother. Um, because men in Jewish society around the time that Jesus was alive, um, their uh, respectableness, their honor came from these slow, stately walks, came from other people came to them, they didn't go to others. Other people reached out to them, they didn't reach out to others. But the father that Jesus describes in this story, restoring his son immediately, leaving the party to go out and plead with his older son, he's really got a chip on his shoulder, showing how he values both sons and, and taking on humility himself. Humility, that word that's related to the word humiliation. The father accepts some humiliation on himself to show his love and his value for his sons. This is a radical idea about God that Jesus is suggesting. And we've got these sinners and these tax collectors listening, and they know they're the younger son. They know where Jesus is going with this. And what a relief that must have been to hear. You mean God is a forgiving God? That's, that's a new idea, a really wonderful idea. 
You've got the Pharisees, and they know they're being described as the older son, and they know they're getting called on the carpet for, you need to be glad. If you're close to the Father, you would rejoice like the Father does when sinners, when tax collectors, when younger, wayward sons are restored to relationship with God. So Jesus describes this Father that's different than what society would have um, expected, what they would have considered right and just. He's recasting the Father, who is as gentle and as generous as he is um, rich and powerful. Um, he describes a father who's merciful and a father who's meek. And this is really turning um, everything that everybody knows about God upside down. I uh, really excitedly told Josh, it was a mistake, my husband who has a degree in religious studies, hey, did you know? And of course he knew. Um, so maybe somebody else here will like, make a face for me because I'm not getting it at home. Um, did you know that the Romans referred to early Christians for about 200 years as atheists? I didn't know that. Partly because they only worshipped one god instead of many, but partly because the god that they worshipped was so weird. He's like so unlike any of our gods or any god we've ever heard of. They're like atheists. They're just, it's like they don't even worship a god. We don't even know what they're doing. This is just so foreign and different than what it would mean to be a religious person at that day. Are you surprised? I was surprised. Atheists. Oh, so here we all are in our atheist meeting. We're atheists. That was really good, Judy. Thanks. Um, she made a really good surprise face. She, she won at the surprise face, not that it's a contest. Um, so, so we have this totally different father who extends this grace, and he pays this price. And then this really interesting thing happens. Because um, I was, you know, you're, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, so the father divides his estate between the sons. And then at the end, the father spends part of that estate. Get the fatted calf and the robe and the ring. Who owns the calf and the robe and the ring? if he's already divided his estate, is actually the son, right? The father says, everything I owe, I have, is yours. Completely true, because he divided his estate. Younger son spent all of his stuff. So anything that's left is now, we kind of understand it to be like jointly held between the father and the oldest son. And um, this gives us kind of a hint about the kind of older brother that the younger brother is meant to have. If we all are the younger brother, the kind of older brother that we're meant to have is given everything by his father. Um, the kind of older brother that we're meant to have maybe would see his father grieved by the broken relationship and would go in search of the younger son. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Like a son of God going in search of humanity that's been separated. Jesus is our, is our perfect older brother. He's everything the older brother was meant to be. Jesus inherits everything from the Father. He has all the power that the Father has, and he comes to earth as a baby, and, and in humility and meekness and in mercy, he pays the price to restore us, to bring our family back together. It's really this beautiful thing. And, and as Jesus is saying this, the Pharisees are sitting right here being the example of the older brother as he shouldn't have been. And they're getting the picture of this is what this should look like. Jesus knows that his death is going to come at the hands of the religious leaders, at the hands of the community leaders, at the hands of the Pharisees. Jesus knows that he is going to die naked so that we can be clothed. He knows that he is going to um, suffer abandonment. He says um, one time in the New Testament, Jesus 
refers to God not as Father. And it's when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, it's because in that moment he's not being treated like a son. He's laid down his sonship so that we can be treated as sons and daughters of God. And so our challenge here is not only to understand this great gift that's given to us by the father and by the right older brother as we, the younger son who have wandered off, felt pain, seen a pattern of sin in our lives and have been restored, the challenge is not just to accept that grace and let us accept that grace. You are, you're good. God has said it over you. Jesus has paid the price. Your sin is gone. When we accept that grace, we are completely restored. But also for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to follow in the footsteps of the Father and to extend that grace to others, what does that look like? Sometimes that looks like being really intentional in friendships and relationships with, um, you know, with the people that we're close to, with the people in our family, with the people that we work with. As a follower of Jesus, sometimes I've, I've felt like, man, I come to these meetings on Sunday, and they tell me how to be a good friend, and some of the lousy people that I work with or that I go to school with or that I know, are they spending any time trying to be a good friend to me? I mean, come on. Like, it's like a lot of effort to be like a really good friend to people who don't know how to be really good friends. And Jesus would say, that's not even a question worth asking. Come and be like me. We don't ask how are people outside of faith doing right by us. We ask, how can we do right by every person in the world? Because every one of them is somebody that God loves. Sometimes that looks like giving generously to churches and to charities as, and, um, and other organizations that are seeking to, to help others connect with God. You know, it's such a, it's such a, a mystical thing, isn't it? Like, a, like a, a hidden thing to be connecting with God. I feel like sometimes I feel so connected to God, and sometimes I don't feel connected to God at all, and I don't know why it happens sometimes and why it doesn't happen. When I am connected to God, I just think I want everyone to experience this. It's part of the reason I come to church a lot, because this is one of the things that we do here. And there's not a lot that we can do, but let's do the things that we can do. Let's have excellent worship music and, and, and let's help out with the kids and let's be really friendly and let's go out of our way to invite and let's do whatever we can do to make the path easier for other prodigal sons and daughters to be able to come home, to be able to feel the radical love of the Father. And then another one is just to be kind in our relationships with one another, dealing with conflict in healthy ways. Um, so that we can really be building a community that has faith, a community that hopes, a community that loves. Because if I do this with you, I get a lot better a lot faster than if I try to do it all by myself. One of the reasons that I love the vineyard so much is because we have these five values that um, I think are distinctive of, the, of, of vineyard churches everywhere, I think are really a gift to the rest of the body. And that is not to um, say it's the only gift. Lots of other denominations give good gifts um, to the rest of us. Really like the Pope these days, liking the Pope. He seems like a guy, right? Um, and, uh, but, you know, as, as we are like the big church, the huge body of Christ, as we're all trying to follow Jesus in ways that are authentic and true to us, something that we value at the vineyard, one of our five values is experiencing God. Because we believe that when we experience God, we're changed just by being in his presence. Just nearness to him because he's so good has an impact on who we are. And so in this story, we see the, older bro or we see the younger brother, and when we're like the other, uh, younger brother, we can try to save ourselves by rejecting God's rules. I want what I want, and I'm going to get it. And so your rules prevent me from having it, so forget your rules. I'm not going to follow them. 
I'm going to get what's going to make me comfortable, what I think is going to make me happy. I'm going to pursue, I'm going to put, I'm going to try to win. I'm going to put myself first. And then we see the older brother, and it's kind of like same song, second verse, same as the first, you know, a little bit louder. Um, because the older brother, when we're like him, we say, we could try to save ourselves by following God's rules. Isn't that a radical idea? That's a hard one to say in church because, like, here we all are following the Sunday morning rule, right? But sometimes we can use the rules to try to get what we want. I want wealth and happiness, so I'm going to check every single box for God. Anything you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it great. But if our hearts aren't right, we could still be using God, trying to use, like, use God through our goodness, the same way that somebody else might be trying to use God through um, not trying to follow the rules. Does that make sense? It's a little bit complicated. Like, trying to understand the older brother, he's this really complicated guy. And, and I think, you know, well done, Jesus, because you've got these Pharisees in the room. How are their hearts going to get turned? I just wonder, I, it's not really recorded a whole lot in the Bible, but I really love the stat. I like stats. So maybe when we all get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, nobody knows that song. I tell Josh, I sing, you know that song? Oh, good, good, good. See, Josh, people know that song. Josh comes from a different church background than I do, and so my Pentecostal background gave us the gift of the song. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Yep, you're singing it in your heads. So when we all get to heaven, I wonder how many Pharisees were turned? How many Pharisees changed their minds? How many Pharisees heard this story and said, oh my gosh, I am. I'm trying to use God. I'm trying to follow the rules, and in following the rules, I'm trying to force God's hand. I'm trying to say, you be good to me because I'm going to follow the rules, as opposed to, I love you. You are so good. And then God's goodness just comes out of that, you know? So uh, the best thing to do <laughs> is um, that we can accept Jesus as the one who saves us. And then we can follow him. We can live our lives the way that he would live if he were living in Springfield, Missouri in 2016. Um, you know, the first two are about control. You know, if I'm rejecting God's ro- rules, I'm trying to take control of my life. If I'm following God's rules in order to manipulate a certain outcome for myself, I'm trying to be in control of my life. But when we accept Jesus as the one who saves us, that's about trust not control. It's so much better when God is in control. It's so much better when I trust and when he's in control. So what do I do when I don't want to do these things, Kara? What do I do when I don't want to accept grace? What do I do when I don't want to celebrate other people accepting grace? What do I do when I don't want to extend grace? I have three really great tips. Um, One is to reflect on what we've talked about today, looking for patterns of sin or pain in your life, looking for patterns of um, feelings that don't match the circumstances, and pray about those. Even better, get prayer about those. We pray on Sunday mornings. We pray in small groups. Hopefully, we're hanging out with each other. And if you, I, I, I will just make, I will just extend the promise. If you hang out socially with any person who's in the room right now, and you say, "Hey, would you pray for me?" They will. And if they don't, you just, you just come. I won't do any. Don't tell. I mean, but they will because we want to pray for each other because that's the kind of people that we are. I just talked myself into a corner right there. Um, the next one would be to, uh, to don't follow the rules just to follow the rules, y'all. That was silly. Um, the next one would be to ask God what he wants and ask him why he wants it. Just give God a chance to tell you about what he wants to do. Tim said in a sermon, this was years ago, that um, he took the phrase that's in uh, like Greek literature, feast your eyes upon Athens and let love of her fill your hearts. And he changed the word Athens to Jesus. He said, feast your eyes on Jesus and let love of him fill your hearts. And how much more than a great city that inspires patriotism, you know, in these 
I don't know, Greek warriors. How much more than a great, great city can Jesus inspire in us? If we take time just to recognize, just to reflect on, just to draw near and see what is Jesus like, it's really hard to resist this guy. He is so good. Every answer is so good and so smart, and he just gets down to the heart of it. And, and he's fantastically complicated, but so clear about what the life that he's calling us into. And then my third tip would be to stay close, physically, emotionally, spiritually, stay close, and keep trying. So back to the fifth grade, my little group of people. You know what happened next? We all got over it. Everything turned out fine. And they kind of apologized. We cried a little. I apologized to Jared. There was like some, I'm sorry, I forgive you kind of stuff. It was like half forced by the teacher, but also kind of real. You know, we don't want to be hurting each other. You insult somebody and they start crying. Pretty easy to feel remorse in that moment, you know. You come in and find out that your whole group is like <laughs> the anti-care club, and you're kind of like, oh, maybe I should rethink that, you know. But, um, but something that we couldn't do then that I can do as an American adult right now is we couldn't get away from each other. We couldn't have space if we wanted to. In elementary school, you're just stuck, right? I mean, if it had been real bullying or something, my mom would have moved classes or whatever. But my teacher, in her wisdom, did not change our group. We had to keep doing our little group projects and, you know, talk about the book together with each other. And just by having to stay close, we had to walk through the relationship after we'd had this challenging time and it gave us a lot of opportunities to extend grace to each other. It gave us a lot of opportunities to accept grace. It just gave us a lot of chances to, um, to mend and to heal together. So, you know, when you're really feeling like, I don't want to extend grace, hang out with that person you don't want to extend grace to. If you really feel like, I don't know if I can accept grace, get prayer a lot, get close to God, and say, I don't want to accept grace, but I'll show up, because that's what I got. I can do the show up part, and, and just see what God does. It's so good.